Last, uh, thanks you guys for all that you guys uh, do to lead us into worship. Good morning, good to see everybody. Good afternoon. Uh, the elders' leadership have asked me um, to give just a three-minute on crossroads, and that's kind of in light of the fact that a lot of new people are coming, and we want to help you know who we are and what we're about. By the way. How many of you are new to Crossroads in the last year? It's amazing. I mean, same the first service. It's awesome. It's something that um, we celebrate. It's also something that we steward, which is why, um, let me just tell you, just shooting right now from the hip, what, what you're part of if you're part of this church. Um, we, first of all, are a church that does not exist for ourselves. Uh, we don't exist to just raise money and pay bills, um, do programs, or even just have Sunday morning worship services. Um, we are a church that, first of all, exists for, for Christ, and we exist for the city of Grand Rapids. We exist for our next-door neighbors. We exist for the neighborhoods. We exist for the community. We exist for the nations, for the whole world. Um, and we're going to play our little role in this, which is another thing of who we are. We do not take ourselves that seriously, uh, but we take God, we take his word, we take his gospel, we take his Christ with utmost seriousness. Um, and our role as pastors and leaders that work at Crossroads, uh, we in no way see ourselves as exalted or more than. Um, we see ourselves basically here to serve you, to train, to equip you, and to partner with you together that we're all this family of pastors and priests and prophets uh, to bring the good news of Jesus Christ uh, to our neighborhood, which is why we also use um, other, like, these are just part of our lingo here that, that we want to introduce you to, lingo like 90-10. 90-10 means 90% of who we are and what we want to be as a church is outside of a Sunday morning gathering. Our gathering really isn't church because you're the church. We're the church. You're in a locker room right now. I'm the coach. Um, and I like that, that language and, and that imagery because uh, we're not spectators. There's a game. There's a playing field. The playing field is the world. It's where we live. And we're all called to be on that playing field. Um, and so, uh, as, as one guy likes to sign his emails that he sends me, war. <laughs> and I like that. It's a reminder. We, we, we live in a world that's at war. And uh, we want to be engaged in it, uh, being sons and daughters of the light, bringing his kingdom uh, to a world that so desperately needs it. So when we gather here, we know we're going to gather in only to go out, um, and that's just a little flavor of who we are. So really, when you're part of this church, um, know that what we want to do is we want to get you in the game, okay? Um, we're not just here to get you to, into a place where you're connected and where you're loved and you're known. Like, those are all values to us, but that's not the end of the game. We want you in a place where you are mobilized, where you know the call of God on your life, and you feel empowered and trained to live out that call um, where you do life. 
for the sake of Christ. So that's Crossroads. Um, we are moving from the book of Daniel, and I know we did not finish that book. And that's, this is really hard for some of you. Um, what I want you to know is we're not bailing on Daniel. We're not like, oh, getting a little tired of this book. Let's go to the next thing. We planned from the very beginning. This is what we wrestled with. Do we go through chapter 6, which is the story, the narrative of Daniel and his three friends, and stop there? Do we do the whole book? Because the next uh, six chapters are apocalyptic, much like Revelation. We thought, and because we were in Revelation for so long, <laughs> we split the difference. We just decided to do half of it, again, to give even you guys more of the tools on how to handle that part of the Bible so that you can be what I am. I'm just a blue-collar scholar. Um, I, I, I scratch, claw, work hard at the stuff that I'm going to learn so I can spill out. But the good news in all of that is if I can learn anything, anyone in this room can learn it, Okay. And uh, do it, because that's what we want as well. That fits right into our vision. So, we are going into the life of Paul. And I'm surprised I didn't hear a big amen, (laughs) because some of you guys get really giddy at the mention of Paul. I hear it all the time. Why does Crossroads avoid Paul? Well, first, we don't avoid Paul. We have preached several of his letters, chunks of Romans, it only feels that way because Crossroads really is commit, committed to not preaching just Paul, but the whole Bible. <laughs> yeah, I didn't expect one there, but that's good. <laughs> um, I'll just say this. In, in my church tradition going up, I feel like too much was made of Paul and too little was made of Christ. My tradition, Paul's not the main thing. Produce Paul. And a, another who writes these theological treatises. Well, I'm here to tell you that Galatians, Philippians, Ephesians, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, these are not theological treatises. Paul is not a professor writing theology, although that's a good thing, and we need our professors who write theology. Paul is a missionary. Paul is a church planner. And we do a huge disservice to Paul when we divorce his theology from his life. He lives... Such an inspiring life for the cause of Christ. And when we look at that, I think we can also better understand the things that he writes. So, we made this for you to just let you know how we've uh, structured this thing, how it's laid out. Um, I really challenge you to look at what we're going to be doing, for instance, next week, Acts 9. And this week, you spend some time in Acts 9. And if you want some further reading to also just help you in this study as you become a blue-collar scholar, um, I've put some resources there as well. Um, So there are four places in the New Testament where Paul lays out parts of his life story, parts of his biography. And four places tells me that it's it's important to Paul that we know about his life. It's it's important to God that we know about his life. So we're going to start today uh, in one of those four places, Acts 22, so you can turn there. The other places are Acts 26, Galatians 1, and then a pithy uh, little 
section as well in Philippians 3. Today we're going to start in Acts 22. Actually, I'm going to start in Acts 21. This is towards the end of Paul's life. He's returned to Jerusalem. (laughs) He goes to the temple. And the crowd, because Paul... And we're going to learn, I think, a little bit about this, but it's a common thing for Paul to trigger people. He, he can trigger a whole village. He can trigger a whole city. I mean, when you look at Acts 21, verse 30, just think about this. The whole city was triggered, and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple. Immediately the gates were shut, and they start beating him like a pulp. It's a very common day in the life of Paul. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to start at 37 of chapter 21. Acts 21, verse 37. Soldiers rescue Paul in this situation, these Roman soldiers. And as they were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? You speak Greek, Paul said. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, no, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city, as you guys know. Please let me speak to the people. And after receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps. He motioned to the crowd. When they were silent, he said to them, in Greek, it's Hebraeus. It's not Aramaic. It's, it's, it's in Hebrew. Brothers and fathers, listen to my defense. And when they heard him speak to them in the mother tongue in Hebrew, they became very quiet. And then Paul said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia. I was brought up in this city, though. I studied under Gamaliel, and I was thoroughly trained in the law and the Torah of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of the way to their death. The followers of the way are are the first Christians. Arrested both men and women, throwing them into prison. As the high priest and all the council can, can themselves testify, I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus. I went there to bring these Christians as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. And to be continued next week, but now you may be seated. So I, I, I want you to just already see something about Paul. Here is this guy, he's all bloody, black and blue, and he's been rescued by these Roman soldiers, and he he says to these Roman soldiers, can I speak? And just like that, their perception of Paul is completely shattered. They, they think he's a terrorist, like some dude from ISIS or something. And all of a sudden what they realize, it's not what Paul says, but it's, it's how he says it. He, he says it in the Greek. And not just the, the common Greek of, of the commoner, but uh, the, the classical Greek of, of the highly educated and they're looking at him, and he's like, 
I, I'm not a terrorist. I, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm a Jew from no ordinary city. As, as you guys know about uh, the place I'm from, it, it would be a little bit like Paul saying, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a Jew from Oxford. And in that moment, it's like, okay, yes, sir, Dr. Paul, you may speak. And then in the next moment, he turns to this mob and instantly quiets them because he addresses them in Hebrew. And I want you to see the authority that, that this man has in, in, in one little quick uh, word to the Roman soldiers. He has them in the palm of his hand, and then another word in the Hebrew uh, to this mob, and he has them in the palm of his hands. It's Paul. That's who this guy is or who this guy has become. So he addresses the mob that, that, that is trying to kill him, and he starts in verse 3, he says to them, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the Torah of our ancestors. He starts with, I'm a Jew. And I want us to notice that he didn't say, I was, I was once a Jew. This is present tense. He's saying, I am a Jew because Paul never stops being Jewish. Paul still goes to synagogue on Sabbath. He still celebrates the feast. He still wears the tassels. Uh, it, it's like Rabbi Jason said last week when, when he came to Christ. He, I liked how he put this. He said, it didn't make him less Jewish, but more Jewish. Same with Paul. And the other thing we, we know about Paul is that he's a Jew of the diaspora. He's not a Jew uh, that, that's raised in, in the land of Israel, but uh, he's part of the diaspora. Diaspora simply means a scattering. Uh, because in the first century, Jews are not just in Babylon or in the promised land, but they are scattered all over the entire world. And Paul says, I'm from I was brought up in Tarsus of Cilicia. Tarsus is something we need to know if we want to know about Paul's upbringing because Tarsus, first of all, is a very Greek city in the first century. But before it was Greek, it was Persian. And before it was Persian, it was Babylonian. And before it was Babylonian, it was Assyrian. And before it was Assyrian, it was Hittite. So this is a city with layers upon layers of history and culture. Now, in Paul's day, Tarsus is very Greek. In fact, it's an important city. It's the capital city of the Roman province of Cilicia. And, and this part of the world is where the east meets the west. In fact, the world's uh, most important highway runs right through Tarsus. Uh, so not only does the world run through Tarsus, but it's also a port city, which means the, the, the world and all the cultures of the world land there, they port there, they do business there. And I already said, it's, 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 it's the world's Oxford. In fact, Strabo, uh, a historian, a generation before the time of Paul, this is what he writes about Tarsus. He says, the people at Tarsus have devoted themselves so eagerly, not only to philosophy, but to the whole round of education in general, that they have surpassed Athens and Alexandria, or any place that can be named where there have been schools and lectures of philosophers. Further, the city of Tarsus has all kinds of schools of rhetoric, which is, is the art of public speaking. And in general, it not only has a flourishing population, but it's very influential. And he says, it is 
It is Rome that is best able to tell us the number of learned men from this city, for it is full of Tarsians, such is the city of Tarsus. That's where Paul's from. Shapes him. He understands the world. He understands Greek and Hellenism. It's just there. It's what he sees every day. He's probably been influenced by the schools there and the scholars and the philosophers. It's all part of God's preparation. Now, another interesting fact about Paul that we find in uh, other parts of the New Testament is that Paul has Roman citizenship. And Roman citizenship would have given Paul just huge status. And let me say this. They say about 80 million people existed in the Roman Empire at the time of Paul. Of those 80 million, only 6 million have Roman citizenship. Only a Roman citizen could wear a Roman toga. Now, we know Paul didn't wear a toga. He still stuck to his his Jewish tassels and and, and Jewish way of dress because so often, uh, because the the next thing that Paul did capitalize on, being a Roman citizen meant you always would receive a fair trial before you were flogged or beaten. (laughs) You're not wearing a toga on this day. If, if, If he did, no one would dare touch him. Because if you touch or lay your hand on someone who's a Roman citizen, Rome, it'll be off with your head. And we know that that, that this Roman citizenship in this way serves Paul because Paul's always on trial. He loves being on trial. He loves being on trial so he can say things, I appeal now to Caesar. And why does he want to appeal to Caesar? So he can talk to Caesar and share the gospel with Caesar. This is Paul. Now, people wonder, how did Paul get his Roman citizenship? And, and what most scholars think is that Paul, being a tent maker, uh, his dad was in a tent maker, because that's the way you learned your trade. You learned a trade from your dad. Um, and either his dad developed this into a very lucrative business, because you had to either pay Rome a large sum of money, like maybe the equivalent of a million dollars today, to get citizenship, or you had to do a huge favor for Rome, so Paul's dad either had a lot of money that he could buy the citizenship or the favor that he did, which was probably a military favor, is uh, the military was in huge need of tents for their barracks. And so Paul's dad probably, uh, as a tent maker, um, did this favor for them. Now Paul says, I am a Jew. That's a little bit like today saying, I'm a Christian, because... That can mean all kinds of things today, just like it can mean a lot of things back then. When Paul says a Jew, in the first century, there are many flavors to what that could mean. It could mean he's a secular Jew. It could mean he's a devout Jew. It could mean uh, he's um, a Pharisee. It could mean he's a Sadducee. It could mean he's a zealot. Uh, what kind of, what, what is Paul saying when he says that? And see, this is why when Paul speaks to them in the Hebrews, he's already giving them a hint of the kind of Jew that he is. Because to speak in the Hebrew, he is letting them know, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm not just a Jew in name. But I'm a Jew 
who's just drenched in it. I mean, a, a, a Jew living in a Greek city in the diaspora, and all of a sudden he opens his mouth and out comes the mother tongue. What you need to know, in the first century, Hebrew, only Hebrew was taught in the synagogues. Hebrew was what was taught in, in, in any day of a religious discussion. It's what was taught in the temple. Um, a rabbi who disciples, the way he would teach them, it would always be in the Hebrew. So this is why the crowd goes quiet. Paul's like, I'm one of you guys. And, and, and not only am I one of you, but I was trained by Gamaliel. And we're like, that's no big deal to us. But you can ask a Jew today, do you know who Gamaliel is? And they'll look at you like, are you kidding? Like he's Rabban. Only seven Jewish rabbis throughout their history have the title of Rabban. Paul says, I was trained by the best, by the greatest, by Gamaliel himself. And when he uses the word uh, trained, it literally, in the, in the um, original language, says, he says, I sat at his feet, which means he's just not a student in the classroom of Gamaliel, but he's, to sit at someone's feet is an expression of discipleship. He's saying, I'm a disciple of his. I, I, I was one of his inner circle. I was with him all day, every day. I mean, it, it would be the equivalent, like me saying to you today, like, um, I'm not just a student who sat in the classroom with Billy Graham, but Billy Graham discipled me. And so, they're, they're seeing all of this in Paul. And Paul is saying to them, I'm one of you. And, and, and he's just like Gamaliel. Gamaliel, too, is, is a Pharisee. Um, and we, we know this about Paul, that this is Paul's flavor of Jewishness as well. Because in Philippians 3, he says, as to Torah, I'm a Pharisee. In Acts 23, verse 6, the next chapter over from this one, he's going to say, I'm a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. And again, I want us to see, this is not Paul saying, you know, I once was a Pharisee, but no longer. No, this is present tense. Paul saying, I am a Pharisee. Now, this makes some Christians uncomfortable. What do you mean Paul is a Pharisee? Because to us, what Pharisee means is a hypocrite. But Pharisee, the word, um, the Hebrew word from which it comes, perush, means to separate. And so the, the, the peroshim, or the Pharisees, uh, that means they're the separate ones. So then you have to ask yourself, well, separate from what? What are they separating themselves from? And if you know it's at the heart of, of being a Jew, it's this call to be distinct. It's the call to be holy. Holy means to be set apart. Different. And that's what the, at, at the heart of, 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 of what's going on here. Um, it's, it's, we're different not just in the way we dress or different in the way that we eat our diet or we're different in the way that we do time with our Sabbath and our feasts and all of this. We're, 
We're, we're called to be distinct in the way that we relate to God. We're called to be distinct and set apart in the way that we relate to each other, the way we relate to our enemies, the way we relate to the poor and those in, who are in need. I mean, that, 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 this is what it means to be a Jew. It's to be holy. Holy as God is holy. To be distinct and set apart. And this is the challenge that Daniel and his friends faced that we just looked at when they were in Babylon. Like, how do we remain distinct? How are we holy as God is holy in a place like this? In Paul's day, it's how do we remain distinct in a world now that is drenched in Hellenism? And we've talked about Hellenism. Hellenism in the, in the first century is a force. It offered this tantalizing view of the world, this seductive lifestyle that on the surface, yes, it looked quite innocent with its, uh, its beautiful cities, its theaters, its stadiums, its marble streets, its, its shopping malls, uh, spas, temples, all of this. But when you got underneath the veneer of all of that, It was a sex-saturated, sport-obsessed, body-perfecting, pleasure-seeking reality that exalted the strong and exploited the weak. And not only was Hellenism something that was seductive and enticing, but oftentimes it would just be shoved down the throats of the Jews. Like we looked at a couple weeks ago with Antigas Epiphanes, who 200 years before Paul um, outlawed Judaism and legislated the death penalty. Uh, and it, it would be the equivalent of today if we had a president who, who legislated the death penalty if you go to church on Sunday or if you're baptized or if you uh, read the Bible or if you celebrate Christmas or Easter. Thousands of people lost their lives. And it was out of this culture war that the Pharisees are birthed. And they don't just emerge, but they emerge as a force. Because what the Pharisee is, it's someone who is separating themselves from all that Hellenism so that they can remain a Hebrew of Hebrews. It's distinction through separation. And so they're separating themselves from the world so that they can be immersed in God and immersed in God's word. So they can know God's word, so they can walk God's word, and they can teach disciples how to walk God's word, even if it costs us our life. It's Pharisee. And I'll tell you how intense this culture war got one generation between, before Paul. And remember, when we talk one generation before Paul, we're also talking the generation of Jesus. They're contemporaries. But there's a ruler over the Jews named Alexander Yanius, and he becomes so infuriated with the Pharisees for their resistance to his Hellenization project that he invites 800 Pharisees to his palace for a banquet, also their their wives and their children. Halfway through the party, the banquet, his soldiers come in, arrest the Pharisees. Next day, lining the streets in Jerusalem, 800 Pharisees are hanging on crosses. 
And these soldiers take their wives and children right before them and slit their throats as they're dying. You talk about culture war. This is the world that Jesus and Paul are born into. And Paul says, I'm a Pharisee, and I'm a son of a Pharisee. The first century historian Josephus tells us that the Pharisees were the easily, easily the most influential and respected group among the Jews. He says they understood the Torah and taught Torah better than anyone else, and that they were most committed to God and his word, and they were committed to teaching the people God's word. As to Torah, Paul says, I'm a Pharisee. I'm, the son, I'm a Pharisee and I'm a son of a Pharisee. And I know what you guys are left thinking right now. Why did Jesus rebuke the Pharisees so much? And I'll give you one simple answer. Because he doesn't re- rebuke Romans. He doesn't rebuke pagans. He doesn't rebuke sinners. <laughs> he rebukes Pharisees. He rebukes them, and this is a rabbit trail worth going down right now, because of their pride. And there are different forms of pride, but I think the kind of pride that is most detestable to God is spiritual pride. It's the pride that because of how good we are and how well we live and what we believe that we are now We have this exalted status and we think we're superior to other people. Do we have that pride? If right now you think you are superior to anyone on the face of the earth, that's pride and it's detestable to God. And Paul, as a Pharisee, oozes this pride. And we're going to see in the weeks to come how Christ is going to confront him. He's going to encounter Christ and, and, and wreck Paul's life. Undo Paul. Deconstruct Paul down to the ground and reconstruct him as this, this new man. And, and Paul is going to be completely humbled in the process so that he can write what he writes in, in Philippians 3. I mean, I can't avoid this now, but we'll look at it more later. Paul says, you know what, if anyone thinks they have a right to boast, it's actually me. And he goes on, he lists why. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to Torah, I'm a Pharisee. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I was faultless. That's Paul. That's the pride of a Pharisee. That's that's the pride of a religious person. But Paul's not done. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider nothing but loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost everything. I consider all that stuff that I thought was once a credit and exalted me as nothing more than garbage. It's garbage to me. 
And I'll tell you, this is the danger of spirituality. It's the danger of religion. It's when we no longer start to see ourselves as debtors. Frederick Nietzsche was right. He says, religion and spirituality can be nothing but a power play, a way for religious and spiritual people to use their right living and their spirituality as a power play with other people to make themselves feel superior. I'm better than you. Remember this parable that Jesus taught about the Pharisee and the tax collector? Jesus said these two guys went up to the prey. That tax collector is a Hellenist, man. He's a traitor. And that Pharisee gets up in the presence of God and he looks at that traitor and he says, God, thank you that I'm not like him. I'm better than that. I pray. I give. I fast two times a week. And see, what makes this kind of pride so detestable, it's not just a power play with other people where we exalt ourselves to feel, feel superior to other people. It's a power play with God. We start now to think God is in debt to us. God, don't you see, I, I fast 100 days out of the year. You owe me. And see, this is what had to get shattered in, in, in Paul's life. All the religion, all this idea that um, I do all this good stuff and, and, and give it to God so that God will like me. When, when the gospel comes in and shatters that and says, it's not about you, Paul, and it's not about your performance. It's all about me. It's what I do and what I give to you. And that's what you have to trust. And that's what Paul begins to trust, why he can say, all the stuff that I bring to the table, it's nothing but garbage compared to Christ. Are you religious? Or has Jesus come in and transform your life? Now, the thing I want to finish with today is when Paul becomes a Christian, for lack of a better word, he doesn't leave his Jewishness behind. Even this aspect of, of, of being a Pharisee, it's, it, it, it's not left behind. He now is a completed Jew in Christ, and he is a redeemed and humble Pharisee. And I think that we need to see this, especially if we're going to understand the writings of Paul, uh, because this comes to play in, in almost everything he writes. So let me just take you to Thessalonians. And Thessalonians is, is a fun letter because, think about this, it's a letter to a church. It's, it's to a church in the city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica is uh, the capital city of Macedonia. Macedonia is the the home to Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great uh, didn't just set out to conquer the world. He, he set out to convert the world to the gospel of Hellenism. So don't think it's ironic then that Paul is going right to the birthplace of Hellenism and preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And a church is born there. And these Hellenists who were drenched in Hellenism Now know the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and, and Paul writes to these newbie Christians. I, I, I love how in uh, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, he says, You turn from idols to serve 
a living and true God. I mean, that, that, that's so Jewish. Like, you guys gave up all your idols, and you repented. You, you, you turned from those, and you turned to the one true living God. And then in the heart of the letter, at the end of chapter 3, Paul does what he does so often in letters. He just starts breaking out in prayer. He prays for them. And listen to what he prays. He says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. And may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God. I want us to hear what Paul is praying. That you would be blameless and holy. That's the prayer of a Jew. That's the prayer of a Pharisee. And then he goes right for the jugular because now he's going to say what this holiness looks like in, in, in the next chapter. In 4 verse 3 he says, It is God's will that you would be sanctified. Sanctified is the word holy. Holy means to be set apart. You need to be set apart and distinct from the world. And then the next clause after that, avoid sexual immorality. And if you want to know the one thing that set apart a, a Hebrew from a Hellenist, it was their view of sex. Because a Hellenist had no sexual ethic. Sex is just something you do when you want to do it, and you do it with whoever you want to do it with. And I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about this, but Israel is the first people to introduce the world to any kind of sexual ethic. And their ethic didn't evolve out of their culture. It's an ethic that comes from God himself, the God who made the world, the God who made humanity. Before that, there was no sexual ethic, and there wouldn't be a sexual ethic. In fact, if you look at how the creation of the world ends in Genesis 2, it ends with marriage between a man and a woman. The man and the woman then become one flesh. Creation ends with sex. Creation ends with God creating marriage and then God creating sex, and then God creating sex for marriage. God made sex. Because God made marriage, and God made sex for marriage. In God's instruction throughout his word, it's clear and consistent. He says, don't have sex before marriage. Don't have sex outside marriage. Don't have sex with the same sex. He even specifies, don't have sex with animals. He says, don't lust with your eyes. Don't lust with your flesh. Flee from it. Run from it. Not a hint of it. And the world knew of no such ethic. 
In this whole area of sexual, sexuality, Hellenism had no rules. It had no bounds. There was, there was nothing that they thought of that would be out of bounds. I mean, sex is something all the gods do with each other. Sex is how we even worship the gods. Even pedophilia ran rampant in Hellenism. And you, you, you have to understand those Jews to those Hellenists were strange. I mean, not only did they have strange dietary uh, laws and, and, and strange customs and, and dress in strange ways, but the thing that was most strange to a Hellenist uh, about the Jews is, was their sexual ethic. They only have sex within marriage. I mean, they avoid our prostitution houses like the plague. They, they don't even go into our bathhouses and into our spas because there's nudity. They don't even go into our public restrooms because they're co-ed. I mean, they had no category for this. And if you think Paul just came along and, and, and says to these newbie Hellenists who have become Christians that, you know, all that Jewish stuff about being holy and about being set apart and living pure lives, like, that's all now stuff of the past. We're all under grace and you can just live as you please. Uh Uh-uh. Not Paul. He says, it is God's will that you would be set apart. Holy. Distinct. Strangely different in this Hellenistic world. In fact, Paul goes on and he gives basically three instructions about sexual immorality. The word in in the Greek there is porneia. He says, first, avoid it. Avoid it. In fact, that that word in original language, avoid, literally means lots of distance or separation. (laughs) Separate yourselves. That's Paul's Jewishness. That's that, that Pharisee in him. It's like, there are places we can't go. There are things that we can't look at. There there are people that we can't be around. There are things in our house that we can't have. Avoid it. The second thing he says is control your bodies. The Hellenists never thought about controlling their body. They, they just lived out their passions and their lust as they came. Now it's interesting, when I studied this word for body, when Paul says control your body, some of your translations say your vessel. In Greek it's the word skuos and it means package. Control your package. That is a very appropriate thing for Paul to say. Do you agree? If we don't control our bodies, our bodies will control us. And they'll control our whole lives. It's very Jewish. It's biblical. It's God. He made our body. Not to be given, like Paul says, in the lust, like the pagans do. And then the third thing he says, and this this almost brings tears to my eyes. He says, 
do not harm or take advantage of a brother or a sister. That person there is not just an object. That person is your brother and your sister. Do not harm them or take advantage of them. See, this is the problem with Hellenism, is that as they live in lust, lust that is unbridled, lust that is fed instead of starved, they think that living all of this out is not going to have any effect when in reality it leaves a massive highway behind it of hurt and shame and abuse. They're clueless to that. Recently, uh, we did a college visit with Bennett to the University of Michigan. We're one of a group of 50 that are getting a tour of the school, and they come to the dorms. And I told Bennett afterward, I said, it's a good thing that you're not my daughter, Kate, because I would not have kept my mouth shut. Because what they showed us was one of the dorms that uh, most of the students live in, and then right next to that dorm, this, this bathroom, and then right next to that bathroom uh, is a female dorm room. (laughs) So what you have here is female room, male room with doors into the bathroom that they're going to share. And and sometimes it just, it just, it puzzles me. When, When I read articles in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, some suggest as many as one out of four of our female students on college campuses are getting raped. They can't connect the dots. It's like, hello? Do you know where we live today? We live in a post-Christian culture. A post-Christian culture is a pre-Christian culture. Pre-Christian West was Hellenism. Our world is Hellenism. When my daughter comes home from school this week because she had to separate herself from a guy that she started to like because he's asking her for nudies. And when she tells him, I'm not giving you nudies, he says, well, I'll just start asking other girls then. And then... He shows her the 40 pictures he has. Sex is sacred. And we've dragged it through the mud, just like we've dragged marriage through the mud. Our call will we be strangely different? Because if we can live out this instruction, we're going to get laughed out of the university. We're going to get mocked and ridiculed in our high schools, even our junior highs. We're going to become a threat in the marketplace. There's a reason why the Jewish people throughout history have been so persecuted. It's because they take holiness seriously. 
And Paul says, it is God's will that we should be sanctified, that we should be set apart, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. And again, this is where I feel the joy of repentance. Because I'm a sinner. I'm a failure. I have failed. I continue to fail. But the older I get, the more I realize in my place of failure, the joy of just being able to admit it, to acknowledge it, and to return to God and to once again experience his love, his grace, his embrace, that fatherly God saying to me, his son, I love you. And Paul doesn't just give this instruction like he maybe would have in his earlier days where here's your instruction. He actually uh, gives us the secret to how we can actually live a holy life. And in verse 8, he talks about you have the power of the Holy Spirit. And I love how Paul says it here because so often he uses Holy Spirit as a title. But here I think he describes how the Spirit of God works within us. Because this literally reads, he says, because God who's placed his Spirit in you, who is holy. Paul's thinking we live in that last age that Joel 2 talked about, that Ezekiel and Ezekiel 36 and 37, when God's going to pour his spirit on on all mankind, he's going to make a new covenant with us, like he says in Jeremiah 31, where he's going to write his Torah on our hearts so we will be able to live a holy life. But not like the way it was before we did this in our own strength, but now we have his spirit in us who is holy. this is why Paul is all the time saying, set your mind and heart on the Spirit and walk in the Spirit. Because the Spirit of God comes into us. He convicts us of sin. He also speaks to our mind and our heart and says, uh, you're a son and a daughter of a father that loves you. And he points us to Jesus. And he, he, he shines the spotlight on the forgiveness that Jesus gives us. And the Holy Spirit is the power of God living through us so that we can live holy lives, not for our glory, but to put God on display for the world to see what he is like. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. May your spirit fill us. May your spirit empower us. May your spirit grow in us. So we could live a holy life. Not for our sake. But for the sake of the world. And for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may everybody know. Everybody. With you. There is forgiveness. Amen. Is my dad here? Maybe not. How about my brother? Dad, get up here and pray for us.
He modeled, he modeled this. This is uh, unfair. <laughs> <laughs> we do that at Crossroads a lot. Go ahead. This is uh, a teaching this morning that is kind of new. You know, it's, this is such a great thing to know that we have the Holy Spirit, part of the Trinity, to live within us, to give us power. Where Rod was raised, we had a hymn that said something like, Dwell on me, O Holy Spirit. Guide me with your life divine. Um, fill us with your presence. Dear Heavenly Father, we just praise you for who you are, for giving us Jesus, who gives us life, and giving us a Holy Spirit that lives us, lives within us, and gives us uh, strength to live life in the mountains and in the valleys, and we thank you for both. Lord, bless each one of us that we may take the 90% that you've given us uh, to live our lives on a battlefield and a war field so that we can be an influence, Lord, on, with people around us and with ever we communicate with. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Dad. Have a great week, you guys.